So um, uh, thanks, everybody, uh, for um, having me today. Um, Alicia um, sends her regrets. Um, Weather, yeah, it is just a little bit of weather, but I got to say, like, I'm going to give Alicia a little bit of an out. They actually declared a snow day for the New York State government today. So it is legitimately um, pretty bad up in the Albany area. Um, Alicia actually travels through really virtually anything. Um, so uh, she really is uh, uh, quite uh, disappointed that she couldn't uh, make it here today. Um, I'm going to just speak a little bit quickly and then, you know, the dive into the, um, to, to the substantive discussion um, can take place. I'll set a little bit of context on what we're thinking about um, at the state level um, and where it is that we're, where it is we're going um, and how far along are we uh, on that path. Um, I'm going to probably just be throwing out a ton of numbers at you, so apologies in advance for that. But, um, uh, the numbers become important only for the fact that what we're hoping that everybody in this room understands and that people generally understand is not that New York State is sort of in kind of this new um, climate business um, just on an incremental basis, right? The, the numbers that I'm going to be putting out there are really quite significant in the nature of the change that we're looking to bring about in New York State's energy realm. And we're throwing out some of these very big numbers at the beginning um, because we do want to indicate that our environmental outcomes uh, are serious and we are going to be orienting ourselves towards them. Um, but at the same time, we're also wanting to make sure that those that are going to be providing that new energy, those new services, understand that the state of New York is in the renewable energy game to get there at scale, right? We've had a lot of good incremental growth, I would say, over the past 10 years. That's all been great. I would say we have a pretty strong foundation of renewable energy in New York. Um, but honestly, when we're looking at the new goals and the new challenges, we really are very much at the very beginning of where we need to be and how we are going to be thinking about energy decision making uh, going forward. So the thing that's actually providing that foundation for us now is legislation, right? We have a new law on the books in New York, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. Um, that establishes that New York State will reduce in-state greenhouse gas emissions 85% by 2050. This is informed by science. It is exactly where the um, leaders in the climate thought environment are telling us we need to get to. And so New York is putting ourselves formally on that track. The CLCPA, or the Climate Act, I'm going to abbreviate a little bit. Um, the Climate Act also is trying to make sure that as we're thinking about the pathway to that 85 by 50 uh, end state, that we're going to be doing it in a way that doesn't kind of lead a lot of the difficult decision making off to later years. So the Climate Act requires that we have to reach 40% emissions reductions by 2030. So half of where we need to get to over our long-term um, long path is actually sort of upon us right now, right? 10 years from now, we need to be 40% uh, of emissions gone in the economy um, than what we had, what experience, sorry, so we'll say 1990, we're 13% of that way. 
So we need to get ourselves to um, really quite significant emissions reductions so that the more difficult emissions reductions can be stage set for, um, for a lot more uh, expansion of those activities in the later 20 years of our uh, climate system. To get to that 40 by 30, now we'll bring it in a little bit, we're going to be looking at 70% of our electricity system is going to be fueled by renewable energy. So this is um, big hydro, lots of solar, a lot of wind, including new markets um, that we're in development stage for um, now. Uh, we do need to make sure that as we are looking at conventional renewable resources, that the foundation that we've built through our RPS program and the clean energy standard that's been in place now for a number of years um, is still on a good churn for what we now are going to be calling conventional renewables, right? Most of that is onshore, land, uh, onshore wind, um, but we're also seeing a big growth in utility-scale solar coming into the system as well. Over the last couple of years, where we've been able to get with just two solicitations with kind of new um, big goals, right? So just a couple of years ago, we were at a 50% by 2030 renewable um, target. Um, and when we were setting out um, our initial solicitations at NYSERDA to start procuring those resources with that new 50 by 30 target in mind, the industry really did respond in ways that um, are bringing us more projects, cheaper projects, and are setting ourselves up for a much larger queue of projects over time. So um, very successful in just two solicitations. We had 42, 46 projects, over 3,000 megawatts of um, new renewables in just those two solicitations. In the 10 years prior, we managed to get 1,800 megawatts. So essentially a doubling of the renewables in just two years, what we had spent our first 10 years getting ourselves up to. So the marketplace is really understanding where we're going and where we need to be getting to. A sub-target within the 70 by 30 goal of the Climate Act is um, an offshore wind goal, 9,000 megawatts by 2030. 2035, sorry, give me five years there. Um, so, and that's starting, I think, from where we all know is essentially zero. Um, but I think also, you know, when we had a previous goal, I think that was just last year, 2,400 megawatts uh, by 2025, NYSERDA issues a solicitation. Um, the market, again, said, yep, New York State, we're in this with you came in with more projects than we had initially anticipated, and maybe I shouldn't say this with some of the folks sitting at the table, but at price points better than we had also anticipated, right? Um, which was terrific, right? So two projects, we were actually in the market for 800 megawatts, we were able to award 1600 megawatts, 1600 plus into um, significant projects. And I think what we're also seeing is that, you know, this again, as we're in the market at scale, at scale level development, the market is already, I think, poised for next iterations of where we need to go, where we need to be. And so um, look forward to um, partners uh, in the offshore wind space um, to ensure that we get that pipeline of new projects coming through the pipe. Um, 
So, um, so that's kind of like large resources. We're also not ignoring how the customer or the customer side of the system is also going to be experiencing renewable energy. So distributed resources are still going to be um, front and center in the way that we're going to be approaching this industry. We still need a lot of that clean supply side coming in, but the way that we need to think about what's going on at the distribution level is also going to be changing quite dramatically over the next several years. Um, we have a new goal of sol distributed solar coming into the state, 6,000 megawatts of, um, of distributed solar by 2025. This is a doubling of the goal that was previously set for 2023, 3,000 megawatts by 2023. Now six by 2025, we actually just submitted a petition to the Public Service Commission um, just last week to get ourselves on that kind of decision-making path to ensure that those market signals are out there to get to that doubling in a very short period of time. But it does look quite promising. Um, currently, there's 1,800 megawatts that are installed in the system now, with another 1,000 already poised for um, being brought into the system. That is quite an acceleration of the industry, even at a time when we're seeing nationally that the industry is kind of flattened out a little bit. The market that we've been able to establish in New York is still generating quite a good amount of interest, and we want to make sure that we can kind of keep that pipeline of projects um, churning along. Um, again, another number. Solar in New York, we've seen a 1,700% growth rate in New York in distributed solar since 2012. Got to keep that going. Um, Energy storage is also going to become an integral component piece of the way that we're going to be approaching the Climate Act and our renewable energy um, uh, outcomes. Uh, currently, we're sitting at 3,000 megawatts of energy storage needs to get into the system by 2030. Thinking about it again, both how are we integrating all of those supply side renewables into the bulk system? But then also, how are we moving power and making sure that the system is also balanced and we actually have appropriate resources, not only at the distribution side of the system, but even at the customer site? How does storage even become an energy opportunity for consumers that are looking to have better control of their energy services um, and potentially even their energy costs? 3,000 megawatts by 2025 of storage sounds like an awful lot. Uh, actually, it's 3,000 by 2030, sorry. Um, sounds like an awful lot. When we look at the queue of projects that are already in the New York Independent System Operator pipeline, we already see that there's interest, at least, for over 5,000 megawatts of storage. This might be a place where we're going to have to look at our energy policy and make sure it's kind of catching up where the market really is trying to get the state to, to come along to that, um, to that particular size of market scale. Um, the other thing that we're also looking to integrate into our decision making as well, and as part of what we need to do in making sure that we're on the right pathway to outcomes in the Climate Act, is energy efficiency. And energy efficiency always has been, always will be, kind of a first and foremost energy resource that we need to grab at in New York State. Um, it's taking on new meaning, um, both in terms of the emissions outcomes that we need to search for, as well as how do we think about load 
and the outcomes that we need to get to in terms of our emissions reduction, and what are the opportunities in terms of making sure that we have managed load so that as we're starting to electrify other emissions-based load onto the electricity system, that we actually are doing it in a way that doesn't force us to have to utilize more electricity than we might otherwise need to use. So that goal that was established for energy efficiency, 185 trillion BTUs of energy efficiency by 2025 coming through our new efficiency New York policy, um, is designed to try to get that. We still need significant amounts of electric energy efficiency, but those TBTU goals are stated in order for us to ensure that you know, the people that are providing energy efficiency services understand we're looking at fuels-based efficiency as well. And we are looking at how are we balancing kind of what's that fuel-based load is as we electrify both heating for our buildings as well as we think about electrification of transportation. Currently, the two larger segments of kind of the economy that we don't have highly developed strategies for getting those emissions out of those parts of the economy. Electrification is certainly the pathway that we see has um, currently um, most promise. Um, but in order to do that, we need to make sure that our system is operating as efficiently as we can get it to be. Lastly, I'll just say where we're focusing on doing a lot of this work at NYSERDA is not just in terms of those environmental outcomes, it's not just in terms of those energy outcomes, but what's it really meaning for New Yorkers themselves, particularly those New Yorkers who are working in energy industries now, um, but also those who are looking for good, strong career paths over the lifetime, over their own lifetime, but as well as the lifetime of, um, of these programs. So NYSERDA is going to be spending a lot more time on workforce development type activities. Offshore wind is certainly providing a very strong um, uh, output for, um, for new jobs opportunities in New York State. Maybe Matt will get into a little bit of um, how we're thinking about the economic opportunities that we need to bring to New York and what are those skill sets required across the entire supply chain um, to ensure that we are building a very strong in-state based <coughs> offshore wind industry even as we're looking for that as a primary energy input um, on a going forward basis. And we need to think about who are the people that are actually going to be doing that as well. So how we get workers acclimated to these goals, understanding the markets that we're looking to build, and appropriately and adequately trained to um, engage in those industries at the offset and make sure that they are um, finding successful careers um, with our clean energy policies is front and foremost in the way that we are thinking about clean energy. So New York, a lot of work to do. Um, and again, we are really sort of just at the cusp of what is a lot of great activity. We've got a lot of good history to, to work off of. Thanks to Bob for a lot of that early phase work. I know Bob realizes that the challenges that we're posing to ourselves um, through the Climate Act um, as well as through our policies and programs is like being right at the beginning of that all over again in a lot of ways. Um, I look at Bob and say that I think I was at the beginning of a lot of that too. So, um, so um, but, um, but um, look forward to working with um, everybody in this room, everybody on the panel, um, to ensure that our um, new Climate Act requirements, our new energy markets are going to be as, um, as successful as they've been in the past and, um, and that we are all looking for a much cleaner and um, greener outcome as we move forward. Thank you.
Well, thank you, John, for those excellent remarks, and uh, thank you for your role in developing a lot of the uh, energy policy here in New York State. Uh, I had the pleasure of sitting on the board of NYSERDA for 20 years and have tremendous respect for the work that they do. And now, as you can see, they're really taking a leadership role in really kind of putting some, I guess, flesh on the bones as to how we're really going to accomplish these aggressive goals that New York State. I get that question asked a number of times. Well, these are, are these very aggressive goals? Do you think we'll ever accomplish them? Well, I think John has uh, given us the framework as to how we're going to get there. It ain't going to be easy, but if you don't set goals, John, you don't get there. So thank you for those remarks, and uh, you did a good job standing in for Alicia. So let's give John another round of applause. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, some of you knew I'm Bob Cattell. I see a lot of uh, familiar faces in the room, uh, longtime friends, not old friends, but longtime friends. Uh, as you know, I've been in the energy business for a long time and spent my uh, entire career in the energy utility business. Over the last 10 years now, I've been chairing an energy center out at uh, Stony Brook University. And about a year and a half ago, I was asked if I would chair the National Offshore Wind Research and Development Consortium. I still haven't come up with an acronym for that to figure it out. But what is that? And uh, that is a, uh, an entity that is funded by uh, NYSERDA, $20 million from NYSERDA, $20 million from the Department of Energy, to do research to develop the new technologies that are going to be necessary to bring down the cost of offshore wind. In the audience uh, today is the executive director of the National Offshore Wind Research and Development Consortium, Carrie Cullen Hitt. Carrie, would you stand up and just take a wave? <laughs> yeah, give her a round of applause. <clears throat> of course, while I'm the chairman, you know how that works. She does the work and gets it done. And she's hit the ground running. We're delighted to have her. So our initial focus in the consortium is to do research. And we have a research uh, roadmap that's been developed by the experts. I'm happy to say that all of the companies represented here uh, at the table are on the board of the consortium. And our role, while initially is to do research, I think we have a longer-term uh, role, and to really support and development of an offshore wind industry here in the United States. So I'm excited to be part of it. <clears throat> it's nice to... Uh, be at the beginning of something new and, and different and to, to play a small role in, role in moving that ahead. I'm here today in a dual, a dual capacity. I'm here as a member of the board of our energy policy and I'm proud to be here in that capacity. But in my role as chairman of the National Offshore Wind Research and Development Consortium, I'm gonna be the moderator of the panel. And without further ado, we'll turn it over to the people who can talk very specifically about what their entities are doing to develop an offshore wind industry here in the United States. We kind of could do it in the order that it comes to mind the way it's done. We'll start with the producers, then we'll go to the people that got to bring it from the, from the windmills onshore, and then get it onshore. So the first speaker, and then we'll have the gentleman from Isur to say a few words as well. So our first speaker will be uh, Clint Plummer. Clint? My name is Clint Plummer. I'm head of market strategies and new projects for Orsted. Orsted's the world's largest owner, developer, operator of offshore wind. We built the very first offshore wind farm off the coast of Denmark back in 1991. And then 25 years later, we built the first offshore wind farm and today currently the only offshore wind farm off the coast of Rhode Island here in the U.S. Uh, we currently are developing a three gigawatt portfolio in the U.S. We have about eight gigawatts online globally and we should by 2030 have a total of about 15 gigawatts of offshore wind generating capacity. So we know a thing or two about offshore wind. Um, let me just pause and say thank you very much to Bill and to Yossi for the invitation, especially Bob for having me here today. You know, when I first saw the 
uh, the list of the panelists here and I heard about this forum, uh, I told Bob that I didn't think that there was anything that I'd be able to add to uh, a panel with such talent and to an audience with such uh, stature. And Bob agreed. <laughs> but he came anyway. <laughs> and he said that what he wanted me to talk about was the trajectory of the, the arc of offshore wind and how we got to where we are today. So I just want to talk about kind of three quick things. One is why is offshore wind important? Second, how do we get to where we are today? And then third, what are the issues that are holding us back? Um, you know, offshore wind is an important resource in a particular area of the world, or better said, a few particular areas of the world. It's not a silver bullet solution that works everywhere and anywhere. It works in places where other forms of generation are difficult and expensive to build and operate, if at all. Here in the US, if we look at the Boston to Washington corridor, about 20% of the US's population lives within an area of landmass that's only about 5% of the entire US. In that area, we've got one of the oldest generation and transmission systems, and we've got an extraordinarily robust regulatory environment that makes it challenging to build big new infrastructure. Because of that, there's a unique confluence of factors that allows offshore wind to be among the most cost-effective new forms of power generation that's out there. One is electric demand and the aging of the system that will require additional generation resources. Second is the fact that this particular geography happens to have one of the very best wind resources anywhere in the world. The meteorologists refer to the area offshore of the U.S. Northeast is the Saudi Arabia of wind because it's strong, it's consistent, and it peaks in output at around the same time that our energy centers use most of their energy. And then third, we have a shallow, flat, outer continental shelf that allows us to construct very cost-effectively. So that's why it makes sense, and that's why it's important. How did we get here? You know, 10 to 15 years ago, a group of companies, including my former company, Deepwater Wind, had recognized the potential for this technology based on the work that Europe had done in advancing this policy, and we began a concerted effort that was together with private companies, academic institutions like Stony Brook, advocates like Marcia Bistrin and her group, and a big group in the community, and folks like Gordian Rocky who've been along with us the whole ride, demonstrating that the communities have a big voice in this. And through that, we were able, state by state by state, to create policies that over a period of a very short period of time have gone from there being no demand for offshore wind in the U.S. to now a roughly 20 gigawatt market in the U.S. by 2035. So it's just in terms of magnitude, we're talking about something in the range of $100 billion of total capital to be deployed over the next 15 to 20 years in building out this resource. So that's where we are today. It's a big industry, and I don't think we're done in seeing policy demand make offshore wind bigger outside of New York itself. Now, there are still challenges. The US is a unique environment, and unlike Europe, you know, we don't have a consolidated single permitting or regulatory framework. When we developed and built the Block Island Wind Farm, we had to get over 20 different federal, state, and local approvals. 
And what's unique about this is that in the U.S., particularly, the smallest voices, the stakeholders, the local communities, have a big voice in an ability to slow down a project through municipal approvals. And Linda James from East Hampton is here. She's been working with us for the last several years on our South Fork wind farm in just getting a simple set of real estate approvals to run four miles of cable in a municipality. Those are things that can kill projects in the U.S. That's unique here. And so those are things that we have to have very concerted, very delicate approaches to. Uh, we're very pleased that you know we're very close to having approval on our South Fork project for all its federal permits. And I think that you know there will be a flood of approvals on these projects going forward. So we've got a big industry. It's got a lot of fundamental reasons why it makes sense. We've got a lot of support. And now there are just some policy challenges that have to be unlocked to make this real. <clears throat> Thank you, Clint. Aren't you glad he came? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we got the wind farm. I will say a comment that Clint recognized right from the beginning, and he touched about it, being involved in the community, having all the stakeholders involved in this project. And any of you who've tried to do projects, you know how important that is, Clint. So congratulations for doing that. Another gentleman I've come to know, uh, he's on the board of the Energy Center, as well as being on the board of the National Offshore Wind Research and Development Consortium. And he's going to tell us how we're going to get the power from the windmills onshore. Kevin Nobler. Kevin? Thank you, Bob. And what a delight to be with all of you today. It's so fun to look out the window and see the snow coming down. And we're all cozy inside here. I think uh, it, it works well for me to follow Clint. And first of all, I, I, I have tremendous respect for Clint and, and for Orsted. Uh, if you think about the way that uh, they have successfully competed up and down the eastern seaboard and won these projects in the first, really the first wave uh, uh, then it's, it's very apparent that this company has shown the technical chops and, and, and gained the confidence of particularly the states as well as the federal, federal regulators. So I just wanted to, to note that. What I want to speak to is, is really what, that we have this extraordinary opportunity in front of us. How often do we get to build a, a, a brand new economic sector from scratch, much less within the energy sector? And that what that means is, is the stakes are very high that we, we do it well and we do it right. Uh, General Dwight Eisenhower famously said in World War II that, that planning is essential, but plans are useless. Uh, I, I think he was overstating or, or understating the second half of that. He was talking about the fog of war, of course. Uh, in our instance, think we have the ability to think this through up front and then to, to move toward those goals, move toward that, those plans. But just to, to, to sort of uh, reiterate what, what Clint was saying about the, the scale, uh, a, a group called Wind Europe, an industry group, uh, just put out a big report prior to Thanksgiving where they suggested that there's, in Europe there is the potential to build 450 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2050. And that's compared to uh, Europeans have somewhere in the ballpark of 20 gigawatts today. So. So it's an enormous lift. And they, that report suggests that uh, we'll need to make investments, uh, again, in Europe of uh, $8 billion a year uh, for the transmission grid as compared to two, a little less than two today. Um, and then, and so that, that seems a little fantastic, but I think it's, it's on the scale that, that people are thinking. And 
I, I think that's, that's exciting. Here in the U.S. with New Jersey's uh, governor, uh, Phil Murphy, just announcing a doubling, roughly, of, of the New Jersey target, the commitments up and down the East Atlantic seaboard are north of 26 gigawatts. Uh, and New York is indeed setting the pace, uh, both in terms of, of the 9,000 uh, megawatt goal and the climate law and, and all of the associated policies associated with that. And if you look at what New York City has set forth for goals, you, you have uh, an extraordinary uh, robust policy infrastructure. Stephanie McClellan, who's at the University of Delaware, a uh, special initiative on offshore wind, her analysis su suggests that uh, almost $70 billion in CapEx uh, will be spent by 2030 against the, those meeting those goals, and that'll produce somewhere on the order of 40,000 jobs. And the International Energy Agency is, uh, is, is arguing that uh, over the next 20 years, the offshore wind industry will grow 15-fold. It'll be a trillion-dollar global industry. In terms of jobs, uh, there's a great outfit here in New York called the Workforce Development Institute uh, that, that has sketched out that there are 74 different types of occupations that are needed to build out this, this offshore wind economy. Construction, finance, legal, technical, maritime, science, engineering, telecommunications, uh, and so forth. So having suggested we should be doing some planning around this, uh, I often find it useful, partly because my background is, is in, in the government and, and the nonprofit sectors, to think about what are the public interest goals that we should be thinking of? What, what, what are those public policy goals? Uh, and I think at, at the outset, it, start, it starts out with creative thinking, problem solving. We have tremendous minds in this room and in these concentric circles around this industry. Let's <clears throat> put the best minds to work on this. But then there are other goals, competition, which we know breeds innovation, breeds uh, uh, cost, cost coming down, uh, afford which leads to affordability. If we overload the electric rate payers, uh, that's going to that's gonna put the brakes on this development over time. We really have to keep those costs coming down. Job creation, economic investment. And then the three R's, reliability, redundance, and resilience. Reliability, will the lights come on? Redundancy, what if, what if one of these offshore platforms goes down or a cable goes down? How will we get that power uh, to shore? And resilience, we are facing, as we know, increasing intensity of tropical storms, uh, hurricanes, and the like. Th this infrastructure out in the ocean has to, has to uh, be able to weather uh, that increased intensity, as well as the onshore infrastructure. And then, of course, greenhouse gas reductions. So one solution that you hear us advocating for at Embarrick is we, sh we should have a planned approach to an open access transmission grid. Long-standing FERC policy onshore separates ownership and development of transmission and generation, uh, and, and it has, has worked well. Uh, going back to FERC Order 888 in 1996. Governor Cuomo, back in January, as part of the State of the State, uh, asked his team to start thinking about planned transmission. And the New York Public Service Commission, as part of the, the first rule for the first round of offshore wind procurement, also asked NYSERDA sure to be thinking about that. And I, I know Matt uh, is prepared to, to speak to that, so I, I, I won't suggest otherwise. Uh, 
but I want to note in the, in the spirit of state-to-state uh, -state competition that New, New Jersey and Massachusetts are on the march on this. The New, New Jersey BPU had a hearing just a couple weeks ago on plan transmission. Uh, the the uh, uh, State Senate Environment and Energy Committee uh, a couple weeks ago reported out unanimously legislation that essentially expands the definition of offshore wind uh, facility to an offshore wind transmission facility for, for the purposes of future RFPs. And again, in Massachusetts, Department of, of uh, Energy Resources uh, is planning an offshore wind transmission conference early next year, and this legislation moving through the Massachusetts legislature in, in a similar vein. And just to, to, to close up this, close up, and to close up this argument, uh, it's very instructive to look at the experience in the states for terrestrial wind, and we would hold up Texas, where really going back to 2005, the, the Texas state legislature, in its wisdom, developed competitive renewable energy zones, planned transmission from the, their wind fields first, and held the transmission only procurement. Uh, and today, it's no accident that Texas has a quarter, a full one-fourth of all in the installed wind capacity in the country. It's produced 25,000 jobs, uh, uh, $370 million in annual payments to ranchers and farmers, and, and in, in state and local taxes, $46 billion in capital investment. And I know we can look at that and think that was kind of expensive way to do it, but we can learn from the fact that they, 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 they looked ahead. And compare that to Maine, which has a, 2000, a 2020 target of 3,000 megawatts, and today aren't even at 1,000 megawatts, in great part because of the challenges around their transmission system and not putting the thinking and the investment uh, into that. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, is the role of innovation. This goes back to why we're so excited about, about the National Offshore Wind Research and Development Consortium and the Department of Energy's investment in, in this innovation is because we're seeing really exciting progress in things like uh, high uh, uh, direct uh, HVDC, high voltage direct current, and AC technologies where they're almost developing and jockeying to bring in uh, fresh advantages. Tenet, the Dutch-German uh, transmission uh, uh, company organization is developing offshore platforms that can handle two gigawatts of offshore wind, uh, offering the opportunity for two, three, four wind farms to plug in and bring a single cable to shore. And it's, so it's the kind of research that and development that, that uh, Bob's organization and Carrie's organization is leading that's going to help us get to these goals and solve some of the near-term problems. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Kevin, for your uh, leadership uh, in that field. And I'm going to turn it over to uh, a gentleman who I had the pleasure of working with for a number of years. Uh, and now we're going to get to where the rubber hits the road, where they finally gets on shore, Rudy. Rudy Winter from National Grid. Rudy. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, Bob. And, and thank you for the great opening words from Lake Serta as well. I think what we're talking about here is offshore wind, but why are we doing it? We're doing it to help deeply decarbonize the energy systems in New York State. And I think NYSERDA has done a great job in showing that leadership to many of many other states in the US. Um, but, but you've heard the numbers, right? If you listen to what everyone said, in five years, five short years from now, we're probably going to look out and see about four gigawatts of offshore wind off the coast of uh, the Northeast. In, by 2030, 
the U.S. will be the fourth largest offshore wind market in the world, starting from where we are now, 2030, the fourth largest in the world. And 15 short years from now, looking around the room, I know a number of you, and a number of you have built a lot of things, so you know it takes a long time to construct big projects. In 15 short years from now, we're talking about 25, 26 gigawatts of offshore wind all across the U.S. Uh, eastern seaboard. So suffice it to say, it's clearly going to be really a sea change. Mike, do I weave that in? Sea change with offshore. <laughs> it's going to be <laughs> a sea change in how we how we generate electricity. It's going to be a huge change in also how we uh, deliver electricity onto shore and onshore, and maintaining reliability uh, uh, and resilience across all this as well. Um, National Grid has a lot of experience and deep knowledge uh, around offshore wind. As many of you know, we're a UK. U.S. business, the U.K. right now is the largest offshore wind market uh, in the world. Uh, in the U.K., we're the transmission owner and we're also the system operator. So we have deep knowledge around how offshore wind integrates into the grid, how it operates on the grid, and how you make sure it gets safely to homes and businesses across the region as well. Uh, in the United States, as, as Bob mentioned, uh, I run our transmission business. We have the largest transmission network in the Northeast. We operate an HVDC line that brings in clean hydro down from Canada into New England. About 10% of the energy used in Massachusetts is clean hydro. We're bringing it on the HVDC line each and every day. Uh, in the U.S., we're the owner and operator of the transmission line that interconnected the first offshore wind farm uh, in the United States. Um, and also in New England, my team has purchased hundreds of megawatts of offshore wind from the providers and the, the projects that have already been approved in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And as Kevin, you said, we are seeing prices come down pretty dramatically, some of it through scale, PPAs, and the other through technologies as well. But having said that, there are challenges, and I think we already alluded to some of them already. First challenge I'll see in the infrastructure of all this is connecting multiple single-purpose radial lines uh, from offshore grids onto onshore. For the first one, two, three, four, it will work fine, but our experience in the UK is that you've got to look for another alternative. In the UK, there's about eight gigawatts of offshore wind, uh, looking to get that up to about 30 gigawatts of offshore wind. Most of that was done radially in the UK, but those wind farms are much smaller than what we're talking about here in the Northeast. We know in the UK, we're going to have to look at something different to make that uh, effective and efficient uh, construction uh, going forward. Uh, the second is, um, I would say, space constraints and capacity constraints. When all this lands on shore, it has to interconnect to probably mostly existing substations uh, in downstate New York. There's space constraints on expanding those substations. So we're going to have to look at how do we think about this in a smart way, plan the expansion of substations, but also the capacity for transmission networks on land as well. Once it lands, we have to move that power throughout the grid. So a tremendous amount of work has to be done to de-bottleneck and remove constraints on the existing transmission networks as well. And then lastly, I would say, and it's been mentioned before, all those shoreline communities, right? Um, we cannot... Um, underestimate, or rather I should say, we can't overestimate their patience with a lot of construction that's going to be taking place across the Northeast 
uh, shoreline over the next 10 to 15 years. Having said all of that, I I'm, a, I'm an optimist, as you know, and I think we will resolve these challenges. We have to start thinking and doing some things proactively. I'm a big advocate in my infrastructure being an enabler and not an inhibitor, which means we've got to get out and do things sometimes before we're actually ready so it doesn't slow down the growth of this very exciting business. So with all of these challenges, I do think we'll get through these challenges. I do think we're at a critical point now that's very exciting because we're doing nothing short of actually changing all of our energy systems forever. Well, as I said, thank you, Rudy, for where the rubber hits the road. And uh, thank you for your optimism and getting it done. Uh, we're cutting a little short on time, and I want to get to that. So, Matt, can I ask you to, for a few brief remarks, Brendan Soto, before we turn it over to questions? Of course. Yeah, good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you again uh, for having me today, and it's a pleasure to step in for Alicia Barton, our president and CEO. Um, as stated previously, my name is Matt Bestel. I am a senior advisor for the Large Scale Renewables team at NYSERDA. Uh, the large-scale renewables team looks at a number of technologies, including offshore wind, but also uh, land-based wind, uh, utility-scale PV, uh, biomass, hydro, what have you, uh, all of which kind of boil up to, to deliver the renewable energy framework that John Williams noted in his previous remarks, uh, which we're looking to, um, to lean on very heavily uh, to deliver our, our ambitious goals for 2030, 2035, and beyond. So um, it's a pleasure to be on, on the stage with, with the three gentlemen to my right today. Um, and happy to answer any questions on uh, on New York State offshore wind. You did keep it brief. Let's give the panel a round of applause. Thank you all for a, really a great job, and uh, I think we're very fortunate to have people like this in the places they are to make it happen.